The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans in the New Testament, right after the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5, verse 12, Romans 5, 12. I'm going to take a, a short break before we get back into John chapter 11. I'm doing a message this morning entitled, The Greatest Problem in the World. The Greatest Problem in the World. And I'm, I'm, I wanted to do this message this morning for you for three reasons. First, about three weeks ago, I was in my study, and this message just came to me. Sometimes in the providence of God, that just happens. And I grabbed a pen, and I, I wrote down the outline to this message in about seven minutes. It was just right there. And so providentially, I felt like God desired me to deliver this message. Second, it's about something very basic, which is sin. But oftentimes, when you assume the basics, things go wrong. You remember John Wooden, the coach of UCLA, the first thing he would do with his athletes is he would teach them how to put on their socks and their shoes. He would start with the basics, and we have to get back to the basics. And the third reason why I wanted to do this is because I sense, I think, that the Lord could do something special in the life of our church as we focus our attention back on the truth of the gospel, as we focus back on the very simple truths of sin, death, and Christ's atonement. We live in an evil world. I think that's obvious to everybody here. You just have to turn on the news. I think the first time this was really impressed upon me was when I was in high school during 9-11. You remember Alan Jackson's song, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning? If, if you're a, uh, if you've been born on the other side of the 20th, 21st century, you remember something about 9-11. You remember that day, and you remember how the veneer of American military might and dominance just shattered as you watched that second plane fly into the tower. I was in high school, and somebody said in the hallway, you know, somebody flew a plane in the tower, plane into one of the, the, the World Trade Center towers. And I remember thinking, what knucklehead would do that? And I went to my next class and we turned on the TV just in time to see the second plane hit. And I remember going out to football practice later that evening and our coach reminding us that we live in an evil world. It is a world with literally bad guys. And you look at the history of the 20th century, which had the most death, carnage, and destruction of any other century before it. Evil is all around us. And moreover, not only is evil all around us, but death and grief and sadness is around us at every step. This week I heard, I was a yell leader at Texas A&M, 
And I heard about a yell leader, 48 years old, he owned a ranching company. This past week, father of, of three, husband, was just out running on a track and dropped dead, 48 years old. I was reading this week about my friend uh, from Texas A&M, he just, he's coming out with a book, it releases August 1st, uh, named Granger Smith, and lives outside of Austin, and uh, he was outside with his kids, and he was helping his daughter do some gymnastics moves, and he realized he hadn't heard his three-year-old for a few minutes, and he walked over to the pool, and his three-year-old face down in the pool, gets him out, calls 911, he's dead before the paramedics get there. This is the world that we live in. What is wrong with our world? What is broken about our world? You'll hear all sorts of answers to this problem. One of the answers that you hear is that it's environmental, that the world's getting too hot, and it's causing people to be crazy. I've lived in Texas long enough to know that's not true. I can function rationally at a 104-degree football practice. Or maybe, like John Dewey, it's educational. We just don't know enough. If we knew enough, if we knew enough science, we could fix the world's problems. If, if people were just educated about what was right and wrong, then the world would be okay, and we could just fix everything. Or you hear that it's economical. The problem with the world is that people don't have enough money, possessions, if everybody were just equalized and everybody had the same stuff, then the world would be okay. Have have y'all heard this? Okay. None of those things even touch the heart of the problem because the problem goes so much deeper. The problem is theological, isn't it? The problem is a three-letter word, sin. Sin is the root of the problem. The Greek word that's used to describe sin in the Bible is homardia, and it means a wrong committed, to fall short of God's standard, to break God's law. There's actually, I looked it up, an English word, homardia, that just transliterates right into English And its definition is a fatal flaw that leads to the downfall of a hero. The problem with the world is homardia. It is sin. And by the way, this is the problem with you and me, because we're part of this world. It's not just outside of us, is it? It's with us. Remember the last time you went on a family vacation? And you said, we're leaving all of our problems behind on this vacation. It's going to be perfect. There will be no problems. I don't, this isn't our family. I've just seen it on TV. I've seen it on TV enough to know that vacations go wrong. Why is that? Because you're involved. You're involved. Your kids are involved. And so everywhere you go, there's sin. I read about these guys called the Desert Fathers. Have any, has anyone ever heard of St. Anthony? They, were, they lived in Egypt, and they said, you know what the problem is, is that the world is so bad. The world is so decrepit. The world is so de- depraved. What we need to do is go out and live in caves in the desert, and then we will be able to live holy lives. 
And so they went out and they lived in the caves. And they said, you know, have a friend, you know, Kenny, can you bring me some food out to the cave? And said, okay, we'll work this arrangement. But you know what they found? Is that the coveting and the lust and the hate didn't leave them in the cities that followed them to the caves. They were fighting themselves in the caves, their own sinful desires. Because sin isn't just something that's out there. It's something that's in the heart. It's in here. It's inside each of us. So if you don't understand that, if you don't understand what sin is and, and how sin manifests itself in your life, the consequences of sin, then you don't know anything about our world. This is our world. And so what I want to do is I just want to give you six qualities about sin, according to the Bible, what the Bible says about sin. Six quick qualities that will help you understand what sin is and how God remediates the problem. The first is the origin of sin. The origin of sin. Admittedly, this one is the most theological. It requires the most thinking. So stay with me. Put on your thinking cap. You with me? Okay, look at Romans 5.12. You're going to have to use logic here. You're going to have to think. You're going to have to look at the verse. Look at Romans 5.12. Paul says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that one man? Adam. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There is the answer to the origin of sin. Sin came into the world through one man, referencing Adam. Here's what you need to know. Adam and Eve were real people. They didn't evolve from ape-like bipods. God put them in the Garden of Eden, and he said to them, you can eat of any tree of the garden except of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were our first parents. God created them. God created Adam out of the dust of the ground and Eve out of his side. We are not evolved from apes. Here's something that's really helpful to understand. Whenever the Bible and science seem to contradict, you go with the Bible. The Bible has always been proven right. You ever hear of Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate was the, the Roman proconsul who oversaw the, the trial of Jesus. For years and years and years, secularists said Pontius Pilate doesn't exist. He was just a made-up figure in the Bible. Well, guess what? 1961, Caesarea by the sea, they uncover a stone, Pontius Pilate, name right on it. The Bible's always proven right. There's a, uh, when Paul wrote Romans, Romans 16, he says, Erastus, the, the city treasurer, also sends, sends greetings from Corinth. People said, there's been no such guy as Erastus. Same thing. Doing an archaeological dig, they uncover a stone, Erastus, city treasurer. The Bible has always been vindicated. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Jesus believed that there was a, a historical Adam. There was a historical Adam. Now, here's the question for you. Who sinned first, Eve or Adam? 
Eve, good. <laughs> Excellent. Eve sinned first. Now look back at verse 12. Who's credited with the sin? Adam is credited with the sin. Here is why Adam is credited with the sin, is because Adam was the covenant representative for all of mankind, all of mankind. When God relates to man, he always relates in terms of a covenant. And whenever there is a covenant, there is a covenant head, there is a covenant leader that is the representative of that covenant. That's why, remember when the children of Israel are out in the wilderness, how many guys went up on the mountain? One, Moses, everybody else, said, God said, you don't even touch the mountain. One guy comes up on the mountain. Moses is the covenant representative of God and the people. Adam was the covenant representative. You might say, well, there's no mention of a covenant in Genesis 1 and 2. There's not. But all the aspects of a covenant are there. There's two parties. There's stipulations. And then there's threats if those stipulations aren't met. Hosea the prophet says this, Hosea 6, 7, but like Adam, talking about Israel, he says, they, the, the people of Israel, transgressed the covenant like Adam did, and there they dealt faith, faithlessly with me. So Eve sins, but she is under the covenant headship of Adam. And so Adam is the one that is held responsible for the sin. And when there was that first sin, in Adam, all of mankind was plunged under the curse of sin. And that's what Paul means in, in Romans 5.12 when he says, so death spread to all men because all sinned. When he says all sin there, he's not talking about our actual sinning. This is really important. He's talking about the fact that in Adam, we were all represented. We were all represented. Represented, yeah. He was the one who stood for us in the garden. And so, because of Adam's sin, his sin is imputed to all of us. And therefore, the consequence of his sin is imputed to all of us. What's the consequence of the sin, he says? Death. That's why you can have little babies die. Because we are all under this curse. We are all under the curse of sin and death, and not just people. Uh, turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Look at this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So God puts a curse on creation. And he says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the creation itself is in bondage to corruption. There is a curse on the cosmos. All of creation is cursed because of Adam's sin. I heard someone say recently, even if there were aliens out there, the aliens themselves would also be under a curse. Isn't that interesting to think about? And that's probably why they don't exist, because Christ only died for people, not some alien creature out there. So we are all condemned. Here's the point. In 
Adam's sin. That's the doctrine of original sin. Original sin is the doctrine that all of creation, including mankind, was plunged into sin, corruption, and death through Adam's sin. Now, I put in your notes this statement from the Westminster Confession of Faith because I think it's, it's really important to grasp this, understand this in, in, in really precise language. I'm going to read this to you. This is, this is what the Westminster theologians in England, this is 1640s, this is what they said. By this sin, they, talking about Adam and Eve, fell from their original righteousness in communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. So sin has an effect upon us. Our bodies begin to age. Our bodies will ultimately die. It has an effect on our thinking. It says, they being the root of all mankind, so they're the first parents, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. So the consequences of that sin and the sin itself are imputed to all of their posterity. From this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to to all evil do proceed all actual transgressions. So this is what's wrong in the world, they're saying. It's Adam's sin, which has had this momentous effect on every one of us and our entire world. And this is what our world hasn't figured out yet. Because if this is the case, then you can't just fix this by propping up man-made systems. If, if the problem is theological, the answer to the problem also has to be theological. Now, second point, second point about sin is the universality of sin. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. This is such a powerful and important verse. I heard someone once say that in a sermon one time, Billy Graham quoted this verse over 40 times, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you look at the, the verse in front of that, it says there is no distinction. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Every single person in the world has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, a Tar Hill, a Blue Devil, or Wolfpack, or even a Texas Aggie. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look at verse 10. That's just either right up above or or to the left of of this verse in your Bible. Romans 3.10. None is righteous. No, not one. Verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this is, of course, because all are born with a sin nature. I'm not going to have you turn here, but Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Jot that down. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So are you following what Paul is saying? 
is are people born good or bad? Bad. People are born in darkness and in sin following the prince of this world. Who's the prince of this world? Satan. People are not born good. They're not. It's Lord of the flies. It's heart of darkness. It's it's we all have our own dark hearts that, that are giving us sinful desires. That's why it's so hard. It's impossible, actually, outside of the power of the Holy Spirit and the new heart to, to fight and defeat sin. You can never do it. It doesn't matter how many self-help books you get. You will still have that indwelling sin that you can't defeat inside of you because you are a sinner. You sin because you are a sinner. And our culture has devised marvelous ways to deny the fact that you're a sinner. When I was growing up, the mantra of the day is that sin or moral evil was relative. Do y'all remember this? It's all just relative. You know, it's subjective. What I think is a sin might not be a sin for you. You know, your culture might be different from mine. You know, if somebody says that, just steal their wallet and see what they say. Is it still relative? But here's the thing now. People are now saying, you're not a sinner. You're not somebody who does evil because you're a victim. Because the reason why you do bad things isn't a result of you. It's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's all an explanation of trying to rid yourself of any guilt whatsoever. The church even does it. You know, the, the church says, if you grow up in a Christian family, we're the good guys, right? We're the ones that are holding, holding up God's law. We're the ones that are, that are acting as the barrier to all sorts of chaos in the culture. So, so we're the good guys. We're the guys with the white hats. But what does Paul say here? We Christians, we churchmen need to remember this. All have sinned all. You have sinned. I have sinned. You know what the first criteria of becoming a Christian is? Is to realize that you are a sinner. That's the first thing. It's to realize that you are a sinner. When Jesus began his ministry and he called Levi to to be his disciple, the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked Jesus a question. They said, why do you hang out with tax collectors and sinners? And this is Jesus' answer. This is Mark 2.17. He says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Grace is reserved for those who understand the fact that they are sinners. And that's why throughout the history of Christianity, so many prisoners and poor have become Christians. Because you don't have to go convince a prisoner in, in jail that he's a sinner. He knows he's a sinner. So you have to come to the realization that the problem is you. You are the man. You are the sinner. You are the person that have broken God's law. Jesus told a parable in Luke 18. He says there's two men who came into the temple. One 
He's a Pharisee. He comes and he prays to God a very self-righteous prayer. He says, God, I thank you I'm not like any of these other people, these extortioners and prostitutes and tax collectors. And then there was another guy, a tax collector who came behind him. And he wouldn't even approach the threshold. And Jesus said he beat his chest and he said, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Is that where you're at? Even if you're a Christian, are you perfect? Do you live a perfect life? Luther had a phrase, Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, and it means at the same time a saint and a sinner. In Christ, through faith, you're justified and you're declared righteous, but at the same time, you're, you're a sinner still. And what that means is, is that we all stand on mercy. We all stand on grace every single day. We all need mercy because we are all sinners before God. I'm convinced that revival will not happen. And revival, by the way, is not primarily people becoming Christians. Revival is primarily Christians understanding grace once again. Revival is Christians coming to see the depth of their sin and praising God for the Savior that he's provided. That's when revival happens. So what I'm praying for is that we will be a people that aren't filled with pride, but will be poor in spirit. And we will come to this church every week as people who stand on grace and mercy, not self-righteousness. We will acknowledge our need before God. He is a great Savior, but he only saves, saves great sinners. So that is the universality of sin. Third, I want you to see the nature of sin. The nature of sin. Look at the second part of verse 23. The second part of verse 23. Paul doesn't just say, for all have sinned. He adds this next clause and falls short of the glory of God. He says, every single person has sinned. And, and really, this is what sin is. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. What does he mean by that phrase? That we all fall short of the glory of God. It's not just a throwaway phrase. It's an important phrase. When man was created, man was created unique and distinct from the other animals. We're not like dolphins or dogs. We are created in the image of God. David says this in Psalm 8. Psalm 8's an incredible psalm. David says, Psalm 8, 5, you have made him mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So man is the, the crowning achievement of creation, that man is, is made with glory, and that glory is completely and intrinsically tied to man's obedience to God's rule and design. And so when Paul says that man falls short of the glory of God, he's saying that man falls short of God's original in intention and design for humanity, that God created us to know him, to obey his laws, to live in fellowship with him, to love him, 
to rejoice in him, but man has fallen short of that ideal. And here's the point that I want you to see with this, is that sin is primarily vertical. We sin all the time. We sin against people. But that's not primarily what sin is. Sin involves a vertical dimension. It is falling short of the glory of God. It is falling, falling short of the purpose for which God intended for your life. The first sin, when, when Satan tempted, tempted Eve in Genesis chapter 3, was a temptation to reject God. It wasn't just a temptation to eat fruit. You remember, this is what Satan says. Satan said, for God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation was to have a wisdom apart from God. The temptation was to live your own life without God's rule. That was the temptation, that God's hiding something from you. That God's rules are bad. They don't actually protect you. That true fulfillment is outside of God's law. Does that sound familiar? That you find fulfillment following your dreams, following your heart, which the Bible says is wicked. But in reality, the sin is, as R.C. Sproul said, cosmic treason against God. It is a rejection of what is most fundamental about you, that you are created in God's image. And here's why I want you to see this, is because every time you sin, every time you sin, doesn't matter how harmless it is, it is a sin against God. It is a sin against God. We don't understand that in, in, in very practical terms for two reasons. First, we don't understand the holiness of God. And second, we don't understand the degree to which God owns us as our creator. But he owns you, he made you, and he is holy. Do you remember when David sinned with Bathsheba? Committed adultery with this woman. Had her husband killed in battle. And then David's prayer of confession to God is startling. He says, Psalm 51.3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Wow. You just committed adultery with a woman. You had her husband killed. And you have the audacity to say that against God and him only have I sinned? Yes. That's what sin is primarily. It is an offense, an affront against a holy God. David is exactly right. Remember Isaiah, when he experienced the holiness of God, he said, woe is me. Woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips and unclean hands. When we glimpse God's holiness, we realize the degree of our own sin. Paul in Romans 5 says that we are enemies of God. That's our natural position. We are in rebellion against God. So that's the nature of sin. Second, we saw the universality of sin. First, the origin of sin. And then fourth, I want you to see the consequence of sin. 
turn to the right to Romans chapter 6. The consequence of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A wage is what you earn for an action done. The wage that you get for sin is death. The wage that sin pays is death. I remember a couple weeks ago, Mark Coppinger preached here. He said, you don't, you don't really break the Ten Commandments as, as much as you break yourself on the Ten Commandments. When you sin, you are subjecting yourself to death. When you sin, you inevitably go down. There's inevitably a consequence to your sin. Like Jake Spoon and Lonesome Dove. Remember, Augustus McRae said, if you ride with an outlaw, you die with an outlaw. You find yourself on the short end of a rope. Remember Absalom, Absalom in the Bible? Caused an insurrection, found himself hanging from a tree, stabbed with spears. Proverbs 2.22 says, the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. This, this is a hard and fast rule. Paul says in Galatians 6, what you sow, you will what? Reap. What you sow, you will reap. If you sin, you will reap death. If you commit adultery, you will reap a divorce. If you steal from the company, you will be fired. It, the result of sin is death. And of course, Satan makes sin look alluring. Otherwise, we wouldn't be tempted to do it. He makes sin look really good. And then he makes us think we can get away with it. That's the temptation. But you need to remember, if you're being tempted, you need to remember there is a hard and fast rule that when you sin, death inevitably follows because you think you're getting away with it? You think that you can bury it in Vegas or Mexico or wherever? God sees. He knows. You can't ever get away with sin. And because sin is against God, this is, uh, turn, turn over to Romans 2. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a, a day when everyone has to give an account. This is Romans 2.6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be a judgment of hell, Jesus warned. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, not just temporary destruction, not just annihilation, but eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So when we sin, we sin against God, and therefore we reap the consequences that God gives. The most famous sermon ever preached in America is a sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached in the First Great Awakening called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he, he puts this in very stark terms. I want you to listen to this. People don't talk like this anymore, but he says, look, when you commit a sin, if, if you are an unbeliever, if you are walking contrary to the gospel, you need to know where you stand with God in terms of a judgment. He says, quote, listen to this. This is startling. 
there is no want of power. That means lack. There is no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. Sometimes an earthly prince meets with a great deal of difficulty to subdue a rebel who has found means to fortify himself and has made himself strong by the numbers of his followers. But it is not so with God. There is no fortress that num- there is no fortress that is any defense from the power of God. Though hand join in hand and vast multitudes of God's enemies combine and associate themselves, they are easily broken in pieces. They are as great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. We find it easy to tread on and crush a worm that we see crawling on the earth, so it is easy for us to cut a single or slender thread that anything hangs by. So it is easy for, excuse me, thus easy it is for God when he pleases to cast his enemies down to hell. What are we that we should think to stand before him, at whose rebuke the earth trembles and before whom the rocks are thrown down? End quote. So hell, eternal hell, is the consequence of sin. To be thrown down to an eternal punishment. This is very serious stuff. It's very serious stuff. Our world mocks the idea of hell. Mocks it. There's no such thing. Even Christians are afraid to even discuss it. But Jesus, who knew, knew more than anything about it, he knew, he, knew, he knew more than anyone else about hell, warned people over and over and over again that there is a Gehenna, there is a hell, and your sin condemns you to that eternal hell. Hell is not a place for you to go hang out with the boys and have a few drinks. Hell is eternal darkness. Hell is flames. Hell is eternal separation from the love and grace of God. It, it is the worst thing that you could possibly conceive. And the scary thing is, is that people are going there. People are going there because they have sinned and they are under the judgment of God. Now, all of this comes across as very serious bad news. All have sinned. We've all sinned. We've all committed cosmic treason against God, each and every one of us. Each and every one of us deserves the judgment of hell forever because we have disobeyed our God and and Lord who created us. But, and this is just so wonderful, and this is what makes the gospel so special. God has provided the remedy for sin. I want you to look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. If you don't understand what I just covered for the past 35 minutes or so, you will not understand the truth of Christianity. You will not understand it. Because this is the only remedy for sin. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Remember, the wage of sin is what? Death. What does Christ endure? Death. For who? The ungodly. For us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But look at verse 8. This is one of the most marvelous verses in the entire Bible. But God. Don't you love those buts that Paul interjects? The news is so bad. The news is so desperate. The news is so harrowing. But God intervenes. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died to save sinners. You think about that. You know, you go to the store, you go to Costco, when you buy something, do you want to buy something old and ragged and dirty or do you want to buy something new? You want the new hammock. Don't give me the dirty hammock. What does God do? God shows his love for us by buying us when we are ungodly, when we are weak, and when we are sinners, when we are law breakers. This right here is the meaning of the incarnation. The context, when I say the incarnation, I'm talking about the Son of God becoming a man. The context of the incarnation and the work of Christ is the Old Testament sacrificial system. Do you remember in the Old Testament, God said that you would build a, a, a tabernacle and then later a temple, and in the middle of that tabernacle, there would be an altar, and you would bring, when you sinned, a lamb or a goat to that altar, and the priest would slit the throat of that animal and pour out its blood on the altar. And the death of that animal represented what? The death that you deserve for sin. That's what it represented. It was this principle, the wage of sin is death. Except the animal was taking your place. So on the day of atonement, the priest would take two goats, and on one goat, he would pronounce all the curses of the people on that goat. And then he would send that goat out in the wilderness, representing the fact that the sin was being carried away. It's called the scapegoat. On the other goat, he would slit its throat, put on the altar. That goat represented the expiation or the propitiation of people's sin. When Christ died on the cross, he died at the same time the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. The, the, the writer of Hebrews makes the point that he is the ultimate and final sacrifice. He is the, the sacrifice that is made once for all for sin. That's, that's the context of his entire ministry. When the angel appeared to Joseph, this is Matthew one twenty one. the angel said to Joseph, she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching, you remember what he said? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What surprised John the Baptist was this. You remember when, John the, when Jesus comes to John the Baptist, what was Jesus' question? Will you baptize me? John the Baptist says, that's not how it works. <laughs> It's the other way. You're supposed to baptize me, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you must baptize me to fulfill, un to fulfill all righteousness. What's going on there? 
What was the purpose of John's baptism? It was for the repentance of sins, right? He called all Israel. He said, you come, you come out to the wilderness, you repent of your sins, and you get into the water, and that represents the fact that all of your sins are being washed away. That was what the baptism of John represented. So that's why John was so startled when Jesus said, baptize me. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have to get down in that filthy water and take the sins of the people upon myself to fulfill their righteousness, all of the righteousness. I have to take them upon my back. And that's why he was baptized. So his whole, his whole ministry is geared toward this reality of the forgiveness of sins. Remember, the, he was in Capernaum, and they uncovered the roof, and they let a guy down through the roof who was paralyzed. And Jesus looked at this man, and he said, your sins are forgiven. And everybody was stunned by that, because who can forgive sins? Only God. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. Remember, sin is what? Vertical. Jesus says, I forgive sins. People, he's blaspheming. And he says, so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, take up your mat and walk. It was about the forgiveness of sins. When he goes to the cross, the last thing he says is what? It is finished. It is paid in full. The sin debt is paid in full. That's the, that is the purpose and the meaning of the cross. There's, there's this astounding verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's verse 21. Jot down that verse. You should memorize this verse. Paul says, for our sake, God the Father, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. When that, that doesn't mean that Christ became a sinner. It means that on the cross he suffered the penalty for sin that we deserved. He knew no sin. He took on your sin. Personalize that. Think about that. He died for you on the cross for your sin. That's why Christianity is the only true religion. When you talk to any other religion, you talk to, talk to Muslims. They'll say, well, I'm trying to obey the, the pillars. I'm trying to be a good person, do good works. I always ask them, what about the atonement for sin? Where is it? Oh, well, I can do more good works and they'll outweigh the bad. No, the wage of sin is death. I don't care how many good works you do. If you do the sin, you're done. James 2.10, if you break the law, you're guilty of all of it. You're done. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you can be saved. There's one atonement. That's why Jesus says, it's the most loving thing you could say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one human sacrifice. If I wanted to die for you, I couldn't. I'm not perfect. Even if I got on a cross, it would do nothing for you. There's been one perfect life. One, that's it. And he gave himself for sinners. And he made a full atonement. The penalty that would take you forever to pay in hell, he took on the cross in six hours. And he paid it. That's why it's the only true religion. It's the only, it's the only atonement. You, you can search the thousand pagan gods in the world. Look at the thousand false religions. There's no atonement. 
that actually works. Christ is the only substitute. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's the only atonement. And that's why it's so silly when people say, I believe in Jesus and I'm also trying to do good works. Your good works will never atone for your sin. Never. Never. It's the work of one man and his death. And it's the only way. It's the only way anyone will ever get to heaven. But God in his love did it. Isn't that remarkable? That God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If that doesn't make you sing, there's something broken in you. Christ died to save sinners. Last and finally, I want you to see the victory over sin. This is the good news. This is the great news. If you trust Christ in faith, you say, Lord, I look to you. I don't depend on my works. I repent of trying to rely on my good deeds. I look to you as Lord and Savior. He promises that all who call upon his name will be saved. I want you to see this in Romans chapter 8. Turn to the right to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This is another one of those remarkable verses in the New Testament. One of those verses you can take to the nursing home. You just take this on your next beach vacation and recite this up and down the beach. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? All that bad news about hell and eternal damnation, what does he say? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does he say there's a few years of purgatory that you need to work it off? No, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What's the law of sin and death? You sin, you die. You sin, you're judged. The law of the, of the spirit of life has set you free from that law. The moment that you trust Christ in faith, little children, listen to me. The moment that you trust Christ in faith, you can know that there is no condemnation for you. There is no condemnation. That's what God says. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Praise be to God. So you are saved from the penalty of sin. Turn over to, to Romans chapter 6, verse 17. It might be on the same page. It is in my Bible. Romans 6, 17. You're not only saved from the penalty of sin, but you're saved from the power of sin in your life. The moment that you come to Christ, sin's reign over your life is broken. Remember earlier we said that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Now you are no longer. Now you live for God. God puts a new heart in you, the new heart of the new covenant of Ezekiel 36. Romans 6, 7, 17 says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and, have, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of 
righteousness. That's why your affections change when you become a Christian. You now desire to read your Bible. You now desire to be with the people of God. You now desire to do good works. You now desire to use your spiritual gifts. It's all because there's a new power in your life. There's a new master in your life. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you are now a slave, Paul says, to righteousness. That doesn't mean we become perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't fight indwelling sin. We still do because we are not yet saved from the presence of sin. When Christ returns and we receive a resurrected body on that day, then we will be saved from the presence of sin forever and ever. Revelation 21, 27, listen, says, but nothing unclean will ever enter, enter what? The new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. All of creation which is cursed, will be renewed. The great news is I've read the end of the story. And you know what? There's no more sin. There's no more sin. It's gone. Completely vanquished by the blood of the lamb. The cosmos is renewed. That's God's answer to the greatest problem in the world. The answer is the God-man the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself to save sinners and renew creation. Let me just give you several quick application points. First, if you do not know Christ, if you have even maybe been denying the fact of your sin, today is the day of salvation. Paul says, Romans 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Your journey with God begins with owning the fact of your sin and repenting and coming to Christ in faith. Turn to Christ today. Second, as if you are already a Christian, we need to be people who constantly confess our sin before the Lord. 1 John 1, 9 is written to Christians. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And we need to have a culture here in this church where we are readily able and willing to admit our sin. I mean, is anybody here perfect? We're all sinners saved by the blood of the Lamb. So third, third point of application, what that means is, is that there is no room for self-righteousness among the people of God. No room. If you're self-righteous, what that means is that you don't understand grace and mercy. That's what it means. There's no room for that. We are all forgiven beggars, simply telling other beggars where to find bread. That, that's the Christian. Fourth, we should be bold evangelists because we know the real problem and we know the devastating penalty of that problem, which is hell. We should be bold evangelists who are plucking people from the fire like irons, not being timid, not being ashamed of the gospel, but going out and proclaiming Christ, proclaiming the gospel into this lost world because people really are going to hell. And we know that, we understand that. And fifth and finally, when you understand sin and what God did to atone for it, and ultimately eradicate it, it leads to worship. It leads to worship. When you understand sin, you can't help but worship God. You can't help but praise God for mercy and grace. So when you go deep into sin and deep into the problem, 
It's the realization of what was really accomplished for you at the cross. We need to be cross-shaped people, people of the cross. Are you a person of the cross? Have you really been marked by the carpenter? Do you really understand what Christ accomplished for you? He died for you. and That should lead you to doxology, to worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we... We praise you for what you did in your love to save us guilty sinners. All of us to a man, to a woman. All of us stand condemned, guilty, sinful. But in your love, you sent your only son to die in our place for our sins. A full propitiation, a full payment, a full death for us substitution. Praise be to God. Pray, Lord, that we would boldly proclaim this message, that we would understand this message, which is at the very heart of Christianity, the very truth of Christianity, that you have alleviated and made atonement for the greatest problem in the world. We ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website, capitalcommunitychurch.com